Donald Trump called him tough. Rush Limbaugh read one of his articles live on his radio show. Ann Coulter tweeted that article to her one and a half million followers and declared, every sentence is perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, former chief editor of the Jewish Press, Elliot Resnick. Welcome to the Elliot Resnick Show. Can we build the base of Migdash? Can we go on Harabayas? Should Israel have a king? These are the primary questions we'll be discussing today. And with us to discuss them is Rabbi Avi Grossman, an associate at Machon Shiloh, a former teacher at Yeshivat Ramot in Yerushalayim, the former senior editor of the Koran Steinsalz Tanakh in English, and the editor of Haggadat HaPesach, the first Haggadah to be published that revolves around eating the Korban Pesach. Rabbi Grossman, welcome to the program. Hi, how are you? Baruch Hashem. Thank you for joining us. I was going to start by asking you if we're allowed to go on Har Habayas today, and if yes, should we go on Har Habayas? But I think the answer to these questions is partially tied to a more fundamental and even more controversial question, which is, does the Jewish people have an obligation to build the Beis HaMikdash today, even before Mashiach comes? Oh boy. I guess it would be intellectually dishonest to say one answer equivocally. Yes, we can, or no, we cannot. However, I can't say that it is clear from perhaps an objective evaluation of the Talmudic sources that we are permitted. And it is our job today to try to convince those who may disagree to see that not only is it permissible, it's actually required, or not doing so is an impediment to the Jewish people achieving their messianic what the Torah holds their ultimate goal is. But just starting from like the starting point that many Orthodox Jews have, I think, which was my starting point growing up, I remember the first time, I think I was in high school, when I heard someone say we should build a base of Mikdash, I said, what is he talking about? Like, doesn't every from Jew know you need to wait for Mashiach? And that's when we're going to have a base of Mikdash. So starting from that standpoint, how do you get you know, from there to know you're supposed to build a base of Mikdash? That's really what Hashem wants? That's really what Judaism says? And if so, how do you make that case? You start from the beginning. You start your Torah study with the biblical verses. You study your Parsha. You study your Mishnayis. You study your Gemara. You study the Rishonim. You follow the Masorah. Many issues can be quite confusing if we just come with the perspective that that with which we are familiar today is and always was and perhaps always should be. So when we look at this issue, building the Beit HaMikdash, it seems clear that there is a commandment to do so. The sages said explicitly in the Medrash Halacha, it's brought by the Rambam. Those who study Gemara are familiar with it. The Jewish people are given three commandments to observe when they enter the land of Israel. Nowhere in our Jewish tradition does it say that those commandments were suspended at any particular point. The three commandments I'm referring to are the commandments to appoint a king, to wipe out Amalek, and to build a temple, Shuto Kimashmo. Those who want to argue that, let's say today, there is no longer such a commandment, they're, like they say in, in Hebrew, Yadam they have the lower hand. They have the burden of proof to show us why one of the eternal commandments, and we believe that the commandments were eternal, suddenly became out of force. Now, we look around and we see that there has not been a temple now for basically 1,952 years or so, right? Or 53. And it doesn't look like there is any major movement, at least in Judaism with which we are familiar, to rebuild the temple. So one would not be mistaken in 
coming to the conclusion that somehow there's no longer commandment or somehow we are even perhaps forbidden to do so. Many of us have come to the conclusion that because we knew that one day the Messiah would come and we would keep this commandment, we have now taken the illogical but very uh, natural step to conclude that we should not be doing any of this before the Messiah comes. So I believe that the key is to convince people to look from the beginning. You start Parashat Truma, Parashat Truma, as they say in America. You see that it opens with what Rashi and Maimonides bring from Chazal, that there's commandment to build a temple. And nowhere were we ever told by our sages or our prophets that that commandment is no longer in force. And we have to remember that. As for going to uh, the Temple Mount, there is no way for us to even begin to conceive of a way to keep these commandments if we do not go to the Temple Mount. And it's unfortunate those who study history see that there are many times in history since the destruction of the Second Temple that the Jewish people have gone back to the Temple Mount, attempted to sacrifice, certainly went there to pray, and they continued doing so over the centuries. This has been well documented by other researchers. We could send you sources afterwards. And it's only in the last few centuries when the Ottoman authorities and other Gentile authorities really cracked down on the Jewish presence on the Temple Mount that we became too used to not having such a thing. And that's a problem. For the episode description, maybe if you could send me a link or two so that for people who are listening, they could click on it after they finish the interview so they could look up some of the sources that you just mentioned. And I want to get back to going on the Harabayas, but let's first go back to the original question, which was building the base of Hamikdash. So a question and a statement. First, that's what I want to mention. I've read that there are some sources that seem to indicate that, that the base of Hamikdash will only come after Mashiach comes, but I've read these are only Agadic statements, and we base halacha on halachic sources. We don't base halacha on agadic sources. So even if there are some sources about the Beit HaMikdash miraculously falling from heaven when Mashiach comes, we don't base Jewish law on these agadic sources. And now my, my question, I've read that there's evidence that Bar Kokhba wanted to build the Beit HaMikdash 60 years after the Chorban. But even more importantly, there's a there's a medrash, I believe, a medrash, Rabbah, that indicates that one of the either Tanayim or Marayim, many years after the Chorban, actually tried to build the Beit HaMikdash. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that medrash. Okay, so which order should we take that? That's quite a lot of questions you have there. Whichever you feel more comfortable with. Let's first get to the issue of building the temple in the order of the Messianic Redemption. It is not an agotic statement that the future temple will fall from heaven completely built. It will be built by God. That is Rashi's opinion. Rashi uses that idea to explain apparent difficulties in a few Talmudic discussions in Rosh Hashanah, in Lulav Agazel, other places. Rashi brings this up to clarify how it is that we would have a situation when suddenly on Cholomoy Pesach, you have a temple, and it was not in existence right before Yontif began. That's what Rashi is trying to address. But of course, we've also seen that the same Rashi who offers this idea that the future temple will be completed miraculously overnight, also held in Ksubis that that will not be the case. And he was explaining an actual Gothic passage, which explains how the righteous, their handiwork lasts forever and is uh, uh, similar to the handiwork of God. So he writes there explicitly because the building of the temple will be done through the acts of the righteous. So. This idea that Rashi put forth in order to explain a difficulty is by far not unanimous among the Rishonim, and certainly not something that Chazal declared has to be the case. As for the order 
of how everything is supposed to play out in Messianic times. Rambam begins his last two chapters of the Mishnah Torah describing the advent of the Messiah. And he defines the Messiah, so to speak, as the one who engathers the exiles and rebuilds the temple, and in his days will begin to keep the entire Torah as it once was, and as it was intended. But in the next chapter, the Rambam describes how there's other events that are supposed to be happening at the end of days, the War of Gog and Magog, and other such events. And the Rambam concludes and says, really no one knows the order in which all of these are supposed to play out. That's very important. There are great Jewish thinkers, especially of the 20th century, who, based on the Rambam in that first of the two last chapters, ruled the halacha, that the Messiah has to come first. We're not allowed to take any steps toward, let's say, the ingathering of the exiles, the creation of a Jewish commonwealth in the land of Israel, trying to build the temple. We're not allowed to do such a thing because it has to be started by the Messiah. Yet the Rambam himself tells us very clearly that no one knows the order in which these are supposed to play out. Now, the Rambam was writing this in the 12th century. Ironically, we now have a lot more clarity than the Rambam had because we have seen with our own eyes, and I didn't even get to see this, I was born into this, the ingathering of the exiles and the reconstitution of the Jewish commonwealth in the land of Israel began before the coming of the Messiah. The Jewish presence on the Temple Mount has been reinstated before the coming of the Messiah. It could very well be that the sacrificial service and the rebuilding of the temple, and I separate the two, by the way, the sacrificial service is not connected to the temple lahalacha, And every single time in history we've had a temple, the sacrificial t- service preceded the completion of that temple. That's a historical fact. So I separate the two. It could very well be that we'll see the beginning of the sacrificial service tomorrow morning, God willing. And perhaps shortly thereafter, we will see the rebuilding of the temple before the Messiah arrives which is nothing to complain about. And perhaps it'll result in the, uh, some other way. Perhaps the Messiah will come tomorrow and we'll have the temple tomorrow also or sometime thereafter. But the point is, nowhere in our classic sources does it indicate that there is a required order for all of these things to happen. And we have to try to get that message out. There are many Jews who are stuck where they are, sometimes physically in the exile because they're waiting for a Messiah, or stuck in their observance of the commandments or in their connection to God because they have these suppositions that are unfounded. So that answers uh, two of those questions. Before I repeat the other question, to me it always seems strange because the Ram in that last chapter there is giving a sort of a description of what he thinks might happen towards the end of the days. It's not a do this, do that, you must build this now, you must do that now. Most of halacha is do this, do that. And this is not a do this, do that section. This is just like, here's what I think might happen. The do this, do that part is in Hilchus Beis Abkhira, where he says, build a base of Migdash without exceptions. Yes, we are supposed to build the temple. We have a commandment to do so. And it is not our job to question the God. If he gave us these commandments, then we have to try to observe them. I think it's almost unfortunate. I heard someone uh, recently gave a shir. He was basically saying that the value that we hold that it is a good thing to want to go to pray at the temple, even if one cannot offer sacrifice, or even if the temple is not standing. That's not our values. That's not in any of our classical sfarim. And I felt very sorry for this gentleman, because, yes, it's it certainly not mentioned, let's say, the Mishnah or even the Shulchan Aruch, but it is certainly one that is throughout Tanakh. It is one that's in the Mishnah, it's one that's in the Talmud, and it's one that's in the Mishnah Torah. It's just in the sections that have been left out. 
So if you stick to just a few sections of Torah study, you will miss the basics. And by the way, I was surprised this fellow apparently has never considered what he's been saying every time he's been uh, reciting the Hallel. You know the words in the Dorai, Lashem Hashalem Negdan Alecholamo. Says Lecha is Bach Zevach Toda, Uvshem Hashem Ekra. Lecha is Bach Zevach Toda means to you shall I ritually slaughter the Thanksgiving offering. Uvshem Hashem Ekra. What does that mean? As one is slaughtering this Thanksgiving offering, he then calls out in the name of God. The Krovishem Hashem is what Avram Vino used to do. It's variously interpreted as to pray and to do what we say now in English, kiruf, to try to preach God's message, the message of the one God to everybody else. So David HaMelech was saying that this vow that I'm taking right now when I'm in a time of trouble, I'm going to keep this promise to bring this korban and to call out in God's name, where, you know the rest, the, the subsequent verse, in the courtyards of God's temple. Within Jerusalem. David HaMelech was saying, He's making a toast and calling out in God's name. Like I said, calling out in God's name means to get everybody else to notice this, Kiruf, and to pray to God. Sacrifice is one element of prayer to God. We have forgotten this. Offering sacrifice is just another form of Jewish prayer. So, of course, we believe that we're supposed to have a temple and a place to pray. I want to go back to the medrash I mentioned, but before I do this very quickly, I, I'm noticing that you're pronouncing the saf as th, uh, you know, kosi, shuof, esa. Is that the Yemenite pronunciation? And if so, I know you're not Yemenite. So have you adopted it because you think this is the correct way of pronouncing it? That is a tradition that is not just among Yemenites. I guess it lived among Yemenites, but you can go. I'm from Kew Gardens Hills. You can walk down 78th Avenue toward Parsons Boulevard. You'll see that there's a synagogue there that was built well before I was born. It says Jewish Center Torah MF. It's not because the people who built the place had lisps. It's because they know that the proper transliteration of the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet without a dagesh is the equivalent to the sound in English, which is made by the T and H together. That has always been the case. Transliteration has been done by our sages themselves into Greek and into Latin, both of which had a similar sound. And this is just carrying on this tradition. This is something that has been known throughout the world, among Jews, non-Jews, from Jews, non-from Jews. Everybody has known this. It's just very difficult if you have an Eastern European accent, whether Polish, Hungarian, Russian, Yiddish, take your pick, or German, for that matter, to pronounce that sound. So it fell out in places in Europe. If your local language doesn't allow you to make that sound, then you're not going to have that sound in your form of Hebrew. Anybody with European accent such, when they encounter an American word like both or month or three, how do they say it? They say it like an S. That's all. It's just uh, the Yemenites kept it alive more than us. But among certainly very Ashkenazic Rabbanim, they always knew that when you transliterate, you do this. It's only with the advent of art school that we stopped transliterating that way. You could see this. You could open old books. You could open up Sansino publications. They all use this transliteration consistently. And why should I, thank God, as an American Jew who now has the capacity, which my grandparents and great-parents grandparents did not have, to pronounce that simple sound, why should I try to mimic some part of their Eastern European accent when I could at least incorporate that? Tell me, can you say the word with in Hebrew? Simple sound to make in English, right? With. We say it all the time, right? Right. 
such a combination of sounds, a short I sound with a W consonant and a TH consonant at the end. Does that exist in any form of Hebrew? Is Hebrew that limited? So people would just say, if, that, if I'd write it out, Vav, Yud, Tav, with. So they'd say, no, you have to pronounce the, the Hirik long. It has to be E. And the Vav has to be a V, even though Vet's already a V. And the Tav has to be an S or a T. So it'd be Vit or Vis. Why are you limiting yourself? You, you have the capacity. You could do it. So try to pronounce it properly. And that's what I received also for our Grospegal. Whatever you can do, incorporate. And the, the more, the, the better. So I actually always wondered about this spelling in America. I mean, I went to a school in Detroit for a number of years called Shiva, and they pronounced it Beth Yehuda. You know, that, that's the way it was spelled. Yes. We always said Beth Yehuda. The principal used to say Beth Yehuda. But people who came to America 200 years ago, 150 years ago, were they better educated about Hebrew pronunciation, or they, they were just carrying on a tradition of transliteration without really knowing why they were doing it? I can't say for certain. I do know that not everybody was a scholar. Not everybody got to stay in Cheder, even those who got to go to Cheder. I do not believe, let's say, that my great-grandfather's generation were really holding in these things. But then again, they, they were severely limited in their ability to study, to look into these matters, to ever meet anybody who didn't speak the way they did. And they didn't have access to the right Sfarim. should know that Vilna Gaon himself didn't pronounce Hebrew like everybody else around him. That is well attested to. He wrote a book which basically describes how to pronounce the consonants and vowels. And traditionally speaking, it's well known that the Vilnagon did not do like everybody else. And he had to go beyond the Lita that he knew in order to find other places and among other things. It's not like he tried to get to Eretzisrael and then go, into, go westward in Germany only to discover secrets of pronunciation. He was also trying to find other sources with everything that was interesting him. So we have a very strong tradition that those in the know did know. One of the most important things, I remember hearing this from Rabbi Elio Salvechik, that it's fairly clear from anybody who studied this matter that pronouncing the Hebrew vowel cholam as though it is just a simple kamatz followed by, by yud sound is illogical and also not our tradition, even though in Poland that's how they did it. In Lita it was even more corrupted, sounded more like an A. Throughout Brooklyn, they pronounce the two exactly the same, such that the name of God, which has two different vowels, its last two syllables, they rhyme. They say, Dai Nai, which is Sastira Minei Bay, or Tartar de Sastra is the same in our American Aramaic. It's a contradiction. It cannot be. So people who knew, the rabbi told me this, as can be attested to by the Vilna Gaon's own writings, know that the pronunciation is similar to the way we do it nowadays. At least, I'd say, at least some of us do it today, where it's closer to an O sound, like an O sound. That is obvious for those who study. There were Jews in the No, even in Lita, where everybody's pronouncing their cholom like an A, who knew that that is a Yiddishism influenced by the local language, but it's certainly not correct. Let me get back to this Medrash, because even Bar Kokhba, the fact that he wanted to build a base of Mikdash is not necessarily proof of anything, because Bar Kokhba was not, you know, a rabbi, so you could say he was doing whatever he was doing. But I, there's a clear Medrash rabbi, if I'm not mistaken, I haven't looked it up recently, that says that one of the, either Tanaim or Amorayim, was actually wanting to build the base of Mikdash and was actually starting to do so, and then I guess the government revoked its authority. So if you could speak about that Medrash a little bit. Let's start with Bar Kokhba, it is is more than clear from our Talmudic sources and extra Talmudic sources, Gaish sources that mention that Bar Kokhba was trying to rebuild a temple and laid the literal foundations thereof. Some even claim that part of the floor of the, the current floor of the Temple Mount was laid during Bar Kokhba's times. 
the Romans themselves took the beginning of his edifice and converted it into a temple of Jupiter. Now, sometime later, in the 300s, it's mentioned that Julian the Apostate took power in Rome. Who was Julian the Apostate? Why do they call him that? The Christians called him that because he basically rejected Christianity. He had a very short reign, relatively speaking, but he gave ostensibly the beginnings of permission of the Jews to rebuild the temple. And the reaction is mixed. I think it's, uh, I guess, shrouded a little bit in history. To what extent did the Jewish people get on board with this? But eventually they were thwarted in in their attempt to do so. But we see here that they did try, and it was something they were looking forward to. It used to be, up until, let's say, the modern era, that the Jewish people jumped on any opportunity they could to try to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. It's attested to in the 7th century. There were Jews during the Muslim conquests who were trying to make deals with the conquering Muslims to set up one of the descendants of the Babylonian exilarchs, the Reshe Galuso, to take one of their prime descendants and set him up as a new Davidic monarch in Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. This is something we always look forward to. 67, they say, was the first time in history when a conquering power in Jerusalem and on the Temple Mount did not immediately take the place over and turn it into their own new holy place. That used to be the the pattern throughout history. You get your hands on it. It's the most prized place on earth. You do with it as you please. The Jewish people sort of missed this opportunity, but there's many uh, cases of the Jews trying to return to the, the Temple and rebuild it, especially in Talmudic times. Okay, Average Orthodox Jew today believes that we're not allowed to ascend Harabayas in light of the fact that we're all Tame. That's the official position yeah. of the Israeli chief rabbinate. That being the case, why do some people, you among them, ascend Harabayas? We're talking about a possible Isra Daraisa. Shouldn't we be staying far away from potentially violating a biblical prohibition? Like most areas of Jewish law, this is highly nuanced. There are many different categories of impurity. There's many ways to contract impurity. There's many different types of impurity. There's many different ways to remove different types of impurity. The Temple Mount itself has many different areas. And only through a study of these matters can one actually figure out where one should go. But it is very clear. It is beyond clear. Just elementary study of the Bishmayot that not everybody is limited to the same places. This is also, by the way, this week's parasha it talks about the Mahanot. So you see what Rashi brings there. He basically is following what Chazal said, that there's different machanes. There's machanes Shechina, machanes Levia, machanes Yisrael. And there are different types of people who are impure. Each one has his place where he may no longer go. And the sages instituted more nuances. Within Harabayath itself, there's two more defined areas, not just Harabayath. Harabayath corresponds to the Levitic camp as it was. As described in Parashaf Bamidbar, we see that there's three camps. There's the camp of the Israelites, that those are the outer camps of 12 tribes. Within is the camp of the Levites, which surrounded the Mishkan. And they say forever, since they built the temple in Jerusalem, all of Jerusalem corresponds to this camp of the Israelites. And Harbaith corresponds to the camp of the Levites. And the actual inner courtyard of the temple, the one that's called the Azarah, without modification in some cases, but some that's called Ezrath Israel, that corresponds to the way the sanctuary courtyard existed within the Levite camp. And the Torah says that, well, the way the sages understood the Torah, but it's not explicit, we realize that it said, 
Tsaruah v'zav tomein l'nafesh. Tsaruah is another word for Mitzorah. That's a person who's been diagnosed with Tsaraf by the Kohen. And there's a Zav, that's basically a man with a, some sort of a gonorrheal disease and who has a certain level of impurity. And then there's the Tamei L'Nafesh, that's a person who is in contact with the dead. And Rashi points out there, like the Rambam points out, and which is not disagreed upon by any authority, that each one of those men has a different area beyond which he cannot go. So the Zav is excluded from the Levitic camp. So he could be in Jerusalem, whereas the Tzaruah, the Mitzorah, has to be outside Jerusalem entirely. And the Tamei L'Nafesh is only expelled from which camp? The Azara itself, the actual courtyard, Machanesh Chino, which means that this Tamei Meith, and then the Gemara points out, and even the Meith himself, that's a, the actual dead person, a corpse, can be there in Machanel Leviyah. You familiar with the example that the sages give? Who was the main deceased individual who was always present in the Levitic camp the entire time the Israelites were in the wilderness? Yosef. Yeah, Joseph. And who was one who was in charge of his remains at that time? Yes, Moshe. It's Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu kept Joseph's sarcophagus in his remains in the Levitic camp. That's the equivalent of keeping a dead person on Harabayath, lahalacha, which means that a person who uh, all things be equal, is free of other forms of Tumah, let's say Tumat Keri, Tumat Sheretz, whatever it is, he can still be on Har Habayith. That's an explicit halacha. This is just one little nuance of these halachot that we find in Rashi on this week's parasha. But that's also the key for understanding why it is that the Jewish people have always been going to Harabayath, even if, for example, they've been contaminated through contact with the dead. The only way to remove that such contamination is through a ritual involving the ashes of the Paraduma, as most people are familiar. Removing other forms of impurity usually just involves immersion in a mikra. And that we can do. So assuming a person is not a Zav, which, by the way, this has been refuted. There's those, those who say, maybe perhaps misafek. Out of doubt, we should just consider ourselves. Maybe, how do you know you're not a Zav? The answer is having Zivut, this disease, is very rare. And you know it, by the way. You don't have to worry about it. It's not the type of thing that Chazal ever said you have to worry of such a safek. Most of us have become Balikari. That's the most common form of impurity that adult men have. It's also the easiest one to remove, simple immersion. So we can very well achieve this. It's almost surprising that nuance, which is the hallmark of Talmudic scholars and those who are aspiring to be Talmudic scholars, suddenly it's thrown out the window. It's just like, oh, you're all Tamei, stay off of Harbai. It's the equivalent of saying, you know what? Meat has the prohibitions of Trefa and Nevela, Dam and Chelev. You're not supposed to eat meat, period. We don't do that. We instead say, you know what? It's good to perhaps learn the halachot, learn how to slaughter, learn how to check for Trefas, learn how to remove the blood, learn how to remove the Chelev, and then you can eat meat. But with regards to going to the temple, suddenly it's just like, oh, there's a place where if in your current state you would go and you have no reason to go there, you would be hit with an Isur Kareth, suddenly the whole place is off limits. It limits us and our ability to eventually one day actually keep all the commandments we're supposed to keep. I thought part of the answer also was that Herod famously expanded Harabias. He made it much bigger than it is. So when you go on the outskirts of Harabias today, you're actually not on Harabias itself. Uh, so that, that's a little bit iffy. Most of those additions are on the south side. And most of the south side is taken up by the Al-Aqsa Mosque. 
And they don't let you get too close to the Al-Aqsa Mosque because that's where the usual Ishmaelite hotheads are hanging out. And the Temple Mount is quite narrow on its eastern sides and western sides. And there, there's not much Herodian addition. Uh-huh. So uh, you're supposed to make a sobu sion wahaki fua. You're supposed to do a circuitous route around the Harabayas. That's the way it is. You enter and you always keep going counterclockwise. Go, go right. And if you're, unfortunately, a mourner or someone like that, you go left. So you have to make a circuit there. You can't exit the way you came. And other halachot. So, yes, it is true that there are some areas when you first enter that you could say perhaps it's not halachically Temple Mount. But by the time you get to the eastern side and the northern side and the western side, you are on what is certainly Har Habayath. Har Habayath is very small. So there's no Herodian addition there. And uh, if you haven't seen it, I bless you that you see it soon and be able to pray there. The area today, which is used for the daily minyanim, thank God, they exist on Harabayas. You know that there's daily prayer services on Harabayas. And they have birkakonim. They still do not allow Jews to wear anything that resembles a talus, so you have to get yourself a fancy talus that they don't spot. And they don't let you openly wear tefillin, so you have to hog your arm tefillin under your sleeve, and you have to wear a fancy turban or some other novelty hat to hide your shell roche. But you can get away with those things. And they exist on Temple Mount. There's a place in the Northeast where they then have daily Torah study. And all of those are certainly on Harabayath. And you can't say that, no, we're, we're not on Harabayath, it's just Herodian additions. Uh-huh. You said that we know that throughout history, Jews have always gone on Harabayath. I know people say that the Rambam was on there. How, how do we know that? Because they wrote so. We have it clear in their writing? We have it in the Shuvos of the Rambam, where the Rambam attests to his visit to the Temple Mount. And so did his son, by the way. There's some who say that the Rambam writes about and uh, that day of Cheshvan when I went to pray in the great and holy house. And just like I merited to pray in that house in during its state of destruction, I should merit to pray there when it's rebuilt. They say he's referring to just some synagogue in Jerusalem, but that's not the language he's using. And uh, his son also confirms this. You know, he wrote to, I think it was Yefeth the Dayan. Uh, Rambam's son, who is Rav Avram, who is the exilarch after the Rambam and his uh, successor, says, do you remember, he was writing this to the Dayan, it was you, me, father, and uh, another prominent Rav, the four of us went together to the Beit HaMikdash. I think it's important to study the Rambam Pia Rambam because if you compare his language, he's very exact. He doesn't use words freely. When he uses a certain term, he always means what he says, and he consistently uses that term. And Rambam consistently, for example, uses the word Mikdash. In his Paris and Mishnayis, he uses it consistently to refer to all of Jerusalem. In Mishneh Torah, he's very clear that he's using it to refer to all of Harabayath. And he makes it clear that there are places. And I like to emphasize, there's a halacha there in Hilchoth Betha Bechira. The Rambam says that the commandment also to fear the temple, to revere the temple, is one that exists when the temple is both standing and not standing. And then he asks, so wait a minute, if the temple's not standing, how do we fulfill this commandment to revere the temple? And he says, don't enter the areas that are prohibited and only enter the areas that are permitted. He's referring to the Mikdash today. And he himself practiced this. He was there. He writes in his parish of Mishnayis, Tamidos, and in Mishnah Torah, he describes the elevations on the temple, how there are different stairs leading from the east, when one begins, all the way up to the Holy of Holies. And those match the 
reality on the Temple Mount today. The steps are still there. It is very clear now where the Nicanor Gate stood because the elevation, that, that line between the women's courtyard and the next courtyard, that's still there. When you look at just ver- bird's eye view maps of these things that many Achronim were trying to study and trying to figure out, they don't see this in 3D. When you see it in 3D, it is very clear where the Temple Mount is, where each holy area is, almost beyond a doubt, beyond the shadow of a doubt. So it's very important that we focus on what the Rambam said. He tested to doing this. He did himself. He described to us how to do it, and he told us to do it. That's pretty conclusive. Last topic I want to raise. Yisrael Eldad, one of the heads of Lehi, once wrote an article advocating the appointment of a king in the state of Israel. The idea seemed far-fetched to me when I first read it, but it popped into my head as I was watching the coronation of King Charles III last month. Even though English monarchs today have almost no power, they're largely figureheads, as we all know, they still play an influential role as the symbol of their country and are respected, even revered, by the masses. As I was watching the glory and majesty of the coronation, I thought to myself, we the Jewish people could benefit from a monarch as well. What's your view? I think so, as long as it's done right. We're not batting 100 with our appointment of kings in history. But then again, like Churchill said, you know, democracy, it's a pretty bad form of government, but it's the best we've had so far. That's not what's prescribed for us. We're supposed to have a Sanhedrin, for example, which we haven't even touched on, by the way. Sanhedrin, that's the ideal governing body of the Jewish people. They're the ones who make the rules. They're the ones who are in charge of enforcing the rules. They're the Ikar Torsha Balpez, Ramam said. So first we have to have a Sanhedrin. A Sanhedrin is and always was a prerequisite for having a king. So you're asking me now, should we have a figurehead monarch, at least? Uh, certainly not if we do not have a Sanhedrin that is governing things. Sanhedrin always comes first. Even Moshe Rabbeinu, when he was sent by God to Egypt to preach the, can I use the word gospel? He was telling about the redemption. He says, God has revealed himself to me. It is time for the redemption. But who is he supposed to tell this to? This is Canaan. The 70 elders. Yeah. Gather up the elders. The elders that were always there. Moshe Rabbeinu did this in front of, he appointed Joshua also in front of the elders. The elders precede this. King David was appointed by and anointed by the elders of Israel. The Sanhedrin, like the Rambam brings, the halacha, they're the ones who appoint the king. So the mitzvah is on them? Some to say Malacha Melech is a mitzvah on them, not on the Jewish people? Yes, it is a Sanhedrin's job to appoint a king. Now, then the question is, who are they supposed to appoint? They're supposed to appoint the one God had chosen. What does that mean, chosen? It means revealed through the words of the prophet who is the one fit for this. Thank God, even if we don't have a prophet today, we have been told that it's a Davidian, and it's a Davidian who has a certain qualifications, loyal to the Torah and going to enforce the Torah. So I remember... Rabbi Mary Salvechik was a prominent figure. Also, he was a candidate for the chief rabbinate in England, if I'm not mistaken, before Rabbi Mervis's appointment. So he was part of a group of thinkers who were discussing that, yes, Israel currently has a figurehead president who has a limited term. So why don't we just call our figurehead king and make him a Davidian? That, that would be a unifying factor, just like, let's say, the king they have in England. We shouldn't, by the way, we should never want to appoint a king in the manner that the nations of the world do so. We're not going doing it be- like the Goyim. That's that's the wrong way to do it, remember? It's just do it because it's a mitzvah and because that's what God wants from us. You need a Sanhedrin to do this. The Sanhedrin has to be running the show. And if you want a king, you have to first make sure you have a Davidian and he wants to do the right job. Figureheads have existed in Jewish history, by the way. The way 
Saul's successor, his son, his surviving son, who Avner appointed, was Ishbosheth. And the way the Sefer Shmuel describes it is Avner was basically running the show. Ishbosheth was a figurehead. And so too with other kings who were weak. Uh, Yehoash was set on the throne by Yehoyada, the high priest. He was put on the throne at the age of six or seven, if I'm not mistaken. Which means what? Basically, Yehoyada was running the show until Yehoash was old enough to take charge himself. And uh, unfortunately, once his, his Rebbe passed away, he basically went off the derrick a little bit, or a lot. But you see that this is not saying so far into us that we would have a figurehead king. I think that if we could do this right, we could not even have a figurehead. We should actually have a king who has certain extrajudicial authority to do many things that even a Sanhedrin cannot do. And that's a very important part of our Jewish legal system. The fact that you have a king who can use extrajudicial privilege to inflict the death penalty. That's a, that's a very important factor in how we should be observing our laws. I look forward to such a thing like that. But who am I? First, get a Sanhedrin. That, that's more important. The Sanhedrins preceded the monarchy and they existed afterwards. And uh, like I said, it's a prerequisite. So uh, we should first look, look to that. Just to review and tie the beginning and the end together, and we don't have time to go through all the halachic sources, but you're saying it's clear that the mitzvah of building the base of Megiddo is on the Jewish people, not on the Mashiach or Sanhedrin, but the mitzvah of appointing a king is specifically on the Sanhedrin and not on the Jewish people as a whole? To build a temple, you also need a Sanhedrin, technically speaking. It's our job to make a Sanhedrin. It's our job to get our act together. But it is not so clear that if we had a Sanhedrin, that we would first have to say, we are only going to go ahead with having a king before we build the temple. That's the point. Once you have a Sanhedrin running the show, they're the ones who decide. Why do I say this? Maimonides explains more in Nuvim, for example, that when the halacha said, you have to have a king, three mitzvahs, appoint a king, wipe out a malik, build a base of mikdash. So king comes first. He said that that was a technical matter the first time around. Why? Because you need a king to lay down the law if, let's say, the tribes would fight, where should the temple be built? My territory, my territory. So the king could say, I'm the one who makes this decision. We're doing it here, no questions. But once we know how to build a temple, and it's beyond also argument where that temple should be, so we could go ahead with it. We don't necessarily need a king. The halachoth have already been decided. We would just be putting back the temple the way it was. We have a commandment to do so. We would not need a king necessarily this time around before building a temple. Same thing also, by the way, they say with the prophet. Some say you need a prophet to tell you to build the temple. Really, that meant we need a prophet to reveal to us where to put the temple. But now, since the first temple times, we know where to put the temple. There's no longer a question. So we would not need a prophet to tell us today, go ahead and build a temple. And by the way, they thought this once. It's safe for Haggai. Haggai, the, the prophet, came to the people before they built the second temple and told them, why are you waiting for a message from me as God's emissary to tell you to build a temple? You should have built the temple already because you were supposed to. And when he says you, it means not only the people, it means their representatives, the Sanhedrin. So they had a Sanhedrin in those times, and we need a Sanhedrin again today according to the postgame. That's, that's clear? Yes, it's clear that it, it can't be done by individuals. There has to be a Sanhedrin in order to decide these things. For example, as those of us who are studying these halachoth together on a weekly basis, discover that there's a lot of machlokathim. Uh, let's say just taking the Rambam and the Ravad, or the Ravad as they say in Yeshivish. Do you know how many, almost every page, there's a critical difference of opinions. By critical, I mean, this is holding up the building of the temple. We have to have resolution to this. 
So maybe we could say, you know what, we'll just do like the Rambam across the board. Maybe. But is everybody going to decide that? We need a Sanhedrin to give us some hachra'ah. They have to decide these major issues before we can go ahead. How do you make the priestly vestments? In order to have a service, you have to have priestly vestments. In order to have priestly vestments, you have to have techelet and argaman. To shani, we know. We know what linen is. Techelet was something that we've only gotten back recently. And there are some who are still not convinced. I think beyond a shadow of a doubt, that's true. And so many are convinced now and more and more are convinced. But what about the argaman? That's also a critical component. You can't have a priest, let alone a high priest, without that purple dye that they use to dye the other type of wool. What is argaman? Now, it's very clear to many that it's made from the same thing as tcheles. It's just the other type of tcheles, just made indoors. So it stays purple. But Rambam says it's not. Rambam says it also comes from a bug. So who are we going to decide like? In order to be able to just go ahead with the basics, we need a Sanhedrin. And by the way, a Sanhedrin, it's no coincidence that its base of operations is where? The temple. So we need this in order to go ahead with anything. That's what's holding us back. Luckily, we have a mechanism to restart a Sanhedrin, but that's another story. Right, right, right. I think that that's instead asking for a king, asking for a base of Mikdash. First get a Sanhedrin going, and then, uh, like Rabbi Ari Kaplan wrote as such also, we need a Sanhedrin to first resolve all these issues. It's not unimaginable. It's not inconceivable. But we need to do that first. That is the prerequisite and always is and always was. Okay, well, thank you very, very much for joining us today and for all the information. And I'm going to put, uh, afterwards, if we could be in touch briefly, you could send me a link or two to some of the things you mentioned for people to look up some of the sources. And thank you again. Okay. All right, that does it for us. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing to it and giving it a good rating and a nice review if you're so inclined. I hope you enjoyed the episode and have a great day or a great night, depending on when you're listening to this podcast.